This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Frontline Gaming presents 40K Stat Center with your host, Val Heffelfinger, Heffelfinger. and the Falcon. It's time to put the pro into an entirely amateur event when we hang out with Ja Rule at the Atlanta Open. Let's dance with dragons, feast with crows, and sit with sweaty Swedes at the game of Westeros 8. We go where the next best thing to a triple X Heffelmas is a Mary Slaneshmas. There's no kink shaming in Washington. And I squawk forlornly as I hear the sweet soundscape of my homeland when we once again visit Halifax for the Geek Fest GT. We then scramble to get through as many other GTs as we can in a quick and dirty edition of Quick Hitters. Hello, kitties. It's been a while, three whole weeks, in fact, all of December, really. How did it come to this? 24 episodes, more or less in a row, and then silence. Well, it's simple, really. I got it in my head that after Pro Tabletop and the Atlanta Open, the Falcon and I would take a little break, you see. But then, as often happens in the real world, a week before the vacation was to begin, I checked out real hard. So here we are, three weeks later, checking back in. Yes, it's true, Val has a non-existent work ethic, and also true that we'll be going on a planned hiatus following this episode until the new year. This is not only to recharge a bit before we hit the stretch run to LVO, but also to gather material for a new series, Fearsome and Loathful in Las Vegas, our preview of some of the top contenders from around the world coming to the L. Also, after 25 episodes, we're starting to feel like it's time to change up our approach a little bit. So, we're asking you to share your thoughts about the show in the YouTube comments or by hitting up the 40K Stat Center page on Facebook. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you love and maybe even what may not, might not be the greatest. Is our sardonic wit too much for your tastes? Wish you could hear even more highlights from the TOs? Questions or players you'd like to hear from more? Let us know about our show. Because there's one thing we're in this for, baby. And it's the downloads and the listens. Help us build a better click trap. Thank you. So that's about it. Let's get down into it. Tournament news is made possible by bestcoastpairings.com. Download the BCP TO app to organize events for just about any tabletop game system. Download the player app to easily find and participate in events from around the world. Around the world. Subscribe to BCP for as little as $5 a month to support the team and unlock additional features available for iOS and Android. Bestcoastpairings.com. Competitive events. Easier. Let's first take a moment to travel back in time to a fraught era of approximately three weeks ago. The Atlanta Open was coming in hot and the internet was all in a tizzy. The organizers behind Pro Tabletop had taken a few missteps on the way to the finish. But what if it had all worked out? 40k meme lord trolls wondered to themselves. Where would I be without you? Mm. I only think about you. Yeah. I know you're tired of being lonely. lonely. So PCT put it on me. Put it on me. See, that was a Ja Rule reference. Because people thought it would... Anyway, it was a big risk. The tournament that was to be 40K's Firefest. But what if it wasn't? What if after failing to sell out, botching mat designs, having half-baked seating ideas, and a quickly scuttled last-second player contract that both scared and angered parts of the community, that the event itself actually managed to go off without drama? There was $10,000 on the line, after all. With $5,000 going to the top placing player and $2,500 to the runner-up. Surely the li- likes of Justin Midget AAA Lois and Alex Movement is just a phase fennel would win at all costs their way to victory with that kind of coin at stake. Things were so ugly pre-tournament that of the 100 tickets that were sold, only 72 players arrived to participate. Chumps like Matt only won the ITC once route, Stephen used to play Orcs Pamperine. Richard, second place Siegler. 
Sean Nay Nay Naden, and Nick No Name Nanavati were among the only 40K players crass enough, desperate enough, to even show up for such a gong show in the making. But then, something kind of wonderful happened. At this No Holds Barred Firefest, all of these players showed up and a Warhammer tournament broke out. Unfolding over three days and culminating in one of the finer displays of sportsmanship and tactical gameplay on its top table, the Pro Tabletop Atlanta Open basically defied every expectation that the community had for it, and it ended up being exactly what the Latin Gandalf, Adam Salas, said it would be. A normal Warhammer major with a bunch of money on the line, and you know what? Given some of the lead-up, we'll take it. The stream itself was fantastic, and we do encourage you all to check out the VODs, uh, Three tables were rigged up and a remote cam wandered the premises. Live scores of all the games uh, crawled down the left of the screen thanks to the combined power of ITC Battle Apps and BCP. Damien and Thomas Bird, fresh off their coverage of Warzone Atlanta, handled the shoutcasting and did a pretty good job. Check it out. At the very least, it's a good view of what can be possible and hopefully where tournament coverage will be headed. Confusing to anyone following along on BCP was the fact that the tournament used a very unorthodox seating format. In an effort to keep individual players' hopes alive as long as possible, the first round was seated based entirely on, on ITC points and then played out in, an, in standard format for the first three games. On day two, the tournament was reseated into eight snaking brackets, so that in bracket one, for example, the absolute highest pairing could be the one seed versus the eighth seed. The winners of each bracket then seated the final day's top eight, with seven other brackets competing for runner-up prizing. After all was said and done, two players remained on top table, sporting their crisp new Obey Alliance jerseys, Nick Nanavati and Richard Siegler. Let's check in with them for their thoughts on the event once it was all said and done. I think Pro Tabletop was one of the most impactful events to ever occur for 40k, uh, rivaling that of like LVO. Um, so the reason is this is the first time in history we've had like a large cash prize done for a single event, $5,000 goes to the winner, $10,000 total dollars in prizes, and it was a huge success. The event ran very smoothly. We tried some new concepts like standardized terrain on every single table, like to the letter measurements and everything, um, and there was no sportsmanship issues, which was my biggest fear, that people would kind of show the worst sides of themselves playing for $5,000 and whatnot. But you saw super high levels of sportsmanship through every match, especially exemplified in my final game with Richard Siegler on the top table. So if that's the case, then clearly we as a community can move forward and embrace these larger prize sport things without tearing each other's hair out. So I think this is an amazing I idea. think by and large that most of the top players play this game as a gentleman's game. Uh, having played throughout the season uh, at a lot of top tables against a lot of different great players, I have not had a single issue at all. Uh, not no tense moments, um, no particular rules disputes. Everything was resolved amicably, whether that's in say the Nova final or Warzone final, Pro Tabletop final. Everything was you know beautiful, and my opponents were amazing. I think this is probably down to um, just the mentality that 40k players have by and large, these top players, is that they want to win based on their strategy and tactics rather than their opponent forgetting a small rule or, or you know, um, mispositioning something just slightly, even though they said their intent. Um, so by and large, for the top players are really, um, you know, just excellent to play against. Nick and Richard had both recently been to the Peach State for Warzone Atlanta, where they had faced off in only the second round. Richard, of course, went on to win, and Nick finished in sixth place, tied for second most battle points with Adam Abramowitz. Richard was, of course, running his tried-and-true Tau, featuring three commanders, three riptides, and a smothering helping of drones. Let's hear from Richard about the tweaks he made to his list for Pro Tabletop's Atlanta Open. So the changes that I made to my list for Pro Tabletop, uh, one, I added the battalion. I had been playing with a 6CP version for quite a while, but I felt in a marine-heavy meta that the extra CP is actually quite useful for things like Focus Fire against, say, Nick Nanavati's Redemptor Dreadnought, or uh, the Multi-Spectrum Scanner to ignore cover on that particular unit. Uh, in this case, it might have Stealthy. 
Um, I also added a cold star instead of three cyclic ion commanders. I had one cold star in there with fusion just to force my opponent to continuously screen his characters and for late game objective grabbing. And I also switched from marker-like characters to marker drones just to bump up the drone uh, number. And because uh, of the changing meta, there's less plague bearers now, and then there are less Eldar Flyers stacking multiple minuses. Next up, of course, is the Brown Magic himself, running a list that seemed to take up the challenge of just running whatever in a Space Marines list and trying to win GTs with it. A mishmash of an Iron Hands Brigade, the list is uh, apparently the best that one of the brightest minds in the game could come up with. Uh, taking a quick look at it, it's uh, very similar to lists that he's run at uh, SoCal Open, um, at uh, Warzone Atlanta, etc. It's uh, an Iron Hands Brigade. Really, his biggest tweaks here were um, dropping one of his suppressor squads to slot in a, a relic a whirlwind scorpius it meant having to take a attack bike instead of another uh, suppressor unit and uh, moving around some points in his e elites and in his uh, heavies to make room for that uh, the relic's really good especially in itc missions uh, the whirlwind i mean uh, just because it's it's almost always going to guarantee you a, a turn one kill um, just in case you go up against, uh, you know, certain units, uh, certain armies that, uh, that you might struggle to do that with. What, what, what um, makes other it, than that, what makes it so special over a uh, regular ass whirlwind or the thunderfire? I mean, it, it does uh, more damage than both of them. Um, it shoots twice as long as it hasn't moved. Uh, so you don't have to spend CP on it to make it shoot a third time. That's good. Although, although you, you could if you wanted to oh no sorry they, they changed that yeah they, they, they faq'd it so it can't but still it shoots twice without having to spend any cp on it um it's a multi-damage ignores uh, everything so and it's going to be re-rolling ones with iron hands so he doesn't have to keep his captain by it um so yeah it's, it's just a it's a nice piece of tech that you see a lot of people uh, throw in occasionally the big thing is the cost of 215 points um, but you know he's freed up about 60 with the by dropping one of his suppressor squads down to a single attack bike thus keeping his brigade um, I believe he dropped um, a dreadnought he had been running three and now he's down to two um, he has his two thunderfire cannons which I mean they're just uh, undercosted for what they do he's still got his grav cannon um, devastator squad his redemptor his relic contemptor um, the list is you know, it's a it's a very solid Nick list. It doesn't kill. You don't get to kill a lot of things after the first turn or two. Um, it gets a lot of board presence pretty quickly. It's just an overall very solid list. And in a, um, at a an event like uh, Pro Table at uh, Atlanta Open with a uh, fixed uh, terrain and essentially fixed deployments because of their bidding system that they used yep. um, where he can pretty much guarantee he's only going to get one of two or three different uh, deployment zones. It puts him in a really good spot to protect himself as he moves up the board. Very cool. All right. Well, let's see uh, what, what Nick had to say about the list too. So on paper, my list definitely looks like a smorgasbord of garbage. Um, you don't usually see brigades doing well at all, uh, especially not Marine brigades because Brigades often have a lot of tax units and stuff like that. But if you look at my list, um, everything there is there with like a specific purpose uh, to help with a certain matchup or a specific situation. Um, and because you can kind of buff units to insanity levels, like the Dreadnoughts, insanity levels of durability, I mean, um, you kind of can get away with taking a lot of random one ofs in that slot. Um, like you don't need multiple Scorpiuses, one of each Dreadnought so is good enough. I don't really want two grab pods. Um, so that's kind of why it looks like a battle force. But when you put it all together, it does become very cohesive and complements each other really well, which is why I like it. With Greenbacks on the line, these two now literal pros in that they were signed by an eSports team played out an absolutely fantastic game coming down to the very final turn. With a rapport that, one that would have qualified as collusion had one of them not won the damn thing, these two whack gamers amicably played their balls off with nearly a thousand nerds watching from home. Richard, known earlier in the season for a suspicious amount of ties, drew the close watch of head T.O. Kelly Wallace, who after the event told me, I think I know where the ties are coming from. When the game gets to the end, he will straight up tell you what you need to do to win or tie. Nick, to his credit, demonstrated that he wasn't lying when he once said that I don't like winning this way at all, but... Pointing out that uh, Richard was in Melter range for his fusion commander at a very pivotal moment. 
In any event, after six rounds, it was a squeaker for Richard, 27 to 24. Here's what they had to say about the round itself. I have played Richard Ziegler before. He and I actually played at Warzone Atlanta in round two. Um, that game was another nail-biter coming down to the literal final die roll to see if the game went on. They used custom missions with random game lanes. Uh, if it went on to six on the three plus, I would have actually tabled him. Um, and it ended on five. He went for a turn five, just stand on the objectives, win kind of thing. And it ended. So, you know, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I had a different approach to this game in the rematch. Uh, it was a different format, of course. And uh, Richard and I both made slight adjustments to our list. Uh, Richard also came in with a different approach, which is really interesting because we both clearly made a lot of mistakes in the first match. Um, I think if you and I, if Richard and I played that game ten times, we'd probably go 5-5 or 6-4 either way. It's a very even match, we're both very great players, so kudos to him, he took this one down. You know, hindsight is 20-20, so there are definitely things I would have done differently in my game with Richard, having since played it the way it would check out. But that said, uh, I don't think there was a sure path to victory no matter which way you slice that cookie. It's a... Uh, I, I could have moved my Dreadnought differently to get him not killed on turn two. I could have deployed my Intercessors differently, but there was reasoning behind all those choices. And Richard wouldn't have just played the same exact game of 40k back at me had I made different decisions. It was a very reactive game on both sides. So I can't say with any certainty that doing XYZ instead of what I did would have led to a more sure path to victory because Richard does get to play his side of the game too, and he changes what he does. Having played against Nick... Uh, at Warzone Atlanta, I knew that this game against his Iron Hands Brigade was going to be very close and very tight, and so um, ba based on that game, where I had successively lost Riptides over the first couple of turns through his sheer amount of shooting, um, I felt that I needed to play as defensive as possible while still taking board control. So this time around, I left the Riptides on the three-up invulns, and used some of my different stratagems to boost them. But I waited. Um, I didn't use Moncar or Kalyan early. I waited until all of his drops came down because I knew that if I did enough damage and took most of them out, that I would be in a good position going into late game. And that's what ended up happening. I had a small lead going into turn six, and I needed to at least kill, hold, and then either take him off multiple ground control objectives or get kill more. And the game came down to whether I could kill those three intercessors on the objective, and that secured me my kill, and denied him a ground control point, and hold more. Um, killing the librarian was a bonus, uh, get, getting me a kill more. And so, you know, the game was amazingly played, and Nick was obviously brilliant. Uh, he's easily one of the best players in 40k, and he's an absolute gentleman, reminding me about Melta Range, uh, which I had forgotten the entire tournament because I hadn't been running Fusion Commanders. Um, so, <laughs> um, I'll probably add a second Cold Star to the list heading into LVO just because of their utility and because Fusion went down, but I will do my best to remember Melter Range. With the dust settled, Richard Siegler's win will leapfrog him to the top of the ITC rankings following an unlikely Tau-fueled tear through the Marine meta, stretching all the way back to Nova. Will it change him as we approach the LVO? Richard gives us the scoop. That was a bit cheesy, but I'm keeping it. Going into LVO uh, with the number one spot in the ITC doesn't really change much for me. Um, I already exceeded my goals for the season, so now you know I'm just doing my best. Uh, there's so many great players who are also in the running, and LVO is such a massive tournament that anybody finishing in the top eight could potentially win the season, I think. Um, I'm not sure exactly how the points are going to break down, but... I'm going to need to at least get top eight to make it somewhat comfortable. So I'm just going to do my best. I don't feel any pressure. Um, and I hope to continue making new friends on the West Coast uh, when I travel over there. Finally, you may have noticed that Nick was plugging some different stuff than he usually does when he was brought on for player interviews during the stream. Let's leave off with Nick letting us know where we might be able to get ourselves a little bit of that magic in the future. Richard and I are actually embarking on an adventure together where we're going to be sponsored by Team Obey Alliance, the esports team. They're setting us up in a studio down in Tallahassee, Florida, and we're going to do a lot of content creation along with Mark Perry for you guys. So we're going to be playing tons and tons of 40k, so you're going to get to see those different variations of how that Iron Hands vs. Town match goes on. 
along with so many other games where we play different armies at each other and stuff like that. So be on the lookout for that. It's going to be under Art of War, which is my own personal podcast, which I run with John Damaris. And yeah, we're going to have a lot of new exciting stuff for you guys coming up in the new year. So keep your eyes peeled and look, look forward to seeing you there. Tournament news. Brad from Pro Tabletop. You are listening to 40K Stat Center. The boys from Westeros were back again for the eighth installment of the Games of Westeros Major in Sweden last weekend, and we can only pray that the event had a better storyline than the eighth installment of Game of Thrones. Am I right, people? Surely it had... Yeah, you were you're right. Yeah, no, I am. That was fucking awful. So was the seventh season, but people weren't really willing to accept it yet. Uh, but we digress. Mm, true. Surely it had... Two, as there was no all-powerful endless horde that looked unstoppable that would ultimately perish in the early rounds of the event, except maybe Space Marines, no foreshadowed reckonings that would be forgotten in a mad dash to the finish line, unless someone managed to beat Space Marines, no odd character turns that would seem to go against the very nature of their character arcs, I got nothing, no, because in Sweden, there are only Space Marines, there is nothing else, it is a grim place, a dark place, because it's winter, they scoff at the idea of winter there, for they know not else but its cruel hand. That's right. In Sweden, they do not shun the meta, they embrace it. 80 players would pile into the Westeros Gaming Club for Games of Westeros 8, and 24 of them brought Games Workshop's poster boys. Those 24 players would boast a record of 72-41-1, giving them a 63% win rate, and almost 70% once that mirror match was removed. Because the Swedes are cold, they're calculating, and the only joy they can find in this world is the joy they find at the local pub and the one they find when they absolutely thrash someone at Warhammer. If we look at previous games of Westeros events, their faction percentages always weigh heavily on whatever is the most effective list in the worldwide meta, uh, especially when compared to other events. Let's cut to the TO for his take. Uh, the meta was uh, Marines and uh, Marines everywhere. We had, I think, 34% of Marines uh, that was showing up on the first day. Uh, last gov we had like, I think it was 15 Gene Stiller cult players. This time we had one. Uh, we had a lot of uh, Marines. Uh, one thing that I do think uh, maybe affected it was the fact that we used uh, used something called no fact no go, which basically means that uh, if your new codex supplement or like psychic awakening or similar was not allowed to be played, and therefore the latest uh, Chaos Space Marines release was not uh, available for these games of Westeros to be played. Uh, but at the same time, I think this is uh, I think this is the way to go. Uh, if we continue to see releases like the Iron Hands, and actually we were st- we started to think about this kind of rule early on when they released the Gene Steel Cult Codex and. Uh, unearthed uh, mental onslaught shenanigan appeared. It all went kind of smoothly. We had, uh, for for the first time, uh, international guests, which which was really fun. Uh, So I think we would like to, we need to improve on uh, welcoming and uh, welcoming international guests, marketing to the rest of Europe and the rest of the world and maybe get someone to comment on our stream in English so that uh, more people can uh, follow it and actually understand what they're saying, not only the Swedish audience. Uh, And we will definitely have uh, more games of Westeros. Uh, Next one is 7th to 8th of March 2020. So if you're interested to come and play IDC missions in Sweden, uh, write those dates up in your calendar and Head over here. The event would end up having four players undefeated going into round five, three Marines and a Knights player. Facing off at the top table would be Jonathan Santa's Slay Jansen running his take on Iron Hands Brigade versus Joachim, the epitome of angst, Angstrom's House Tyrannus Knights, while table two would feature Christoph Cecil Fiedler's 
Iron Hands Air Wing, uh, who would take on Mikal No Scope X Imperial Fist Indirect Fire List. At the end of it all, Yonathan and Kristoff would come out on top in the name of the Iron Father and both end up undefeated. Let's hear from these two wonderful chefs. So the list is an Ironheim Brigade, a variation of lists run by Nick Nanamati or Nicholas Rose. Uh, it's designed to be able to go second in a world of Iron Hand mirrors, knights and elder vehicles. It does this by not having any vehicles worth shooting, which makes the surplus of low shot damage D6 weapons useless uh, that are saturated in the meta right now. It also has the unkillable, con unkillable Contempt of Dreadnought and another character dread to be put down, to be putting down high quality shots for all six turns. So this really does put the hurts on this vehicle meta by uh, by not having any targets worth shooting at and uh, presenting a lot of anti-tank in return. That the Contempt of Dreadnought is absolutely magical. Um, with the halving damage strat and reducing it by one again by the Iron Stone, um, the reality is that shooting at it is a trap for most lists because it takes more firepower to take down than basically any list in the meta can produce. Um, meanwhile, it hits back with, with lots of uh, great anti-tank weaponry at a long range, which makes it the superior choice to, for example, the Leviathan Dreadnought, which is popular at the moment. Um, I feel that that one's short range and even more points cost than the Contemptor makes it quite easy to play around. It is also more suited to the meta, which is as we know, full of vehicles. Um, so in the finals, I went up against uh, an ex-ETC player for Sweden. Uh, he ran three Tyrannis Knights and three Tank Commanders. Some uh, guardsmen running around. He won the die roll to deploy first and go first. Uh, he spread out in our Dawn of War deployment um, with one tank and one knight in each of the um, close to each of the short board edges, another one tank and one knight in the middle. This gave me the opportunity to deploy and refusing one flank, uh, which put one crusade and one tank commander out of range for the first turn at least. Uh, this as well as having most of my valuable units, like the Centurions, which I use for counter charge in the night matchup. Um, with this also being able to deep strike the suppressors and obviously the grab devastators go in the pod uh, together with the scouts to deny that easy first turn. Um, I then decided that it is probably still correct to try to go first, so I attempted a seize and I succeeded. Um, so on the first turn I bring in my um, grab devastators, uh, target one knight, make him use the four up strat to the four up inventory strat uh, rotating uh, and basically grab devs do what they should do which is like about 12 to 14 wounds on that night and with some other pop shots at it that degrades i then switch target to one of its five up uh, inventory knights with my dreads and managed to also degrade them i do this split fire because against tyrannis knights if you focus on one knight at a time he will just stand one up and put it in the top bracket functionally giving him three full knights for a turn if you instead split fire like this you create the opportunity that in the next turn you can kill two knights in the same shooting phase making him only be able to stand one up again going into his turn he is a bit well, he's crippled by having only one of the knights I shot, being able to act at full profile and having another knight and his tank, one of his tank commanders out of range. Um, so he does what he can and kills some intercessor, kills the grab devs because they never survive past their first uh, shooting phase. Um, put some shots into what turned out to be an unkillable drop pod just to get the, another kill. Um, so when it swings back to my turn, I my uh, my attempt to kill the two knights in the same shooting phase uh, fail fail miserably, and I have to instead only kill one barely. Uh, then my captain charges in and kills it again in the fight phase. It does stand up both times, which is 
like it's just what you have to count on when playing against Tyrannus Knights. Most of the time it's going to be a 75% chance that they stand up, so just, just count on them standing up and you will not lose the game to anything like that. Um, so this does cost me all of my CP and all of his CP, so we're both out. Um, so he, by me having this Whiffer of a second turn, he does get the chance to retaliate and maybe stay in the game. Unfortunately, again, he cannot kill my high-value targets. The Centurions are still out of line of sight. The Dreadnoughts, he cannot kill again because Ironstone on one and Character Keyword on the other. And when it swings around to my turn three, he has killed some Intercessors and that's about it. So, and this turn, he has popped out with his Tank Commanders to try to do some headway in killing my army. The tank commanders popping out are allergic to last cannons basically, so they melt away and both of his low wound knights goes down without the ability to stand up again. Um, this functionally ends the game from our perspective from both of our perspectives and uh... my list is uh, Iron Hand Successor and I have uh, the Master Artisan and Stealthy. Um, I run uh, five um, flyers, uh, three of the Storm Talon and two of the Storm Hawks. I have uh, two Land Speeders, two Invictors, uh, one Chaplain Dreadnought with a Fist and a Venable Dreadnought with a Fist as well. And last cannons, I have uh, three Thunderfire Cannons and a Primaris Lieutenant with the Vox Espiritum uh, Relic that gives me a nine inch aura for the reroll ones to wound. That was uh, very helpful in all my games to get uh, my Thunderfire Cannons in that range and also outside of my base, my Invictors and Subtides Flyers. That was uh, very much worth it. My strategy was uh, mainly playing safe, uh, no overextending and to use the terrain to my best advantage. And I tried to outrange as much as I can in the first turns um, so that I don't lose uh, as many units and I can just grind uh, through the game uh, if I had to. Uh, I, I like my list because I have enough anti-tank and enough anti-infantry that I can go into every matchup and I have a chance. Um, the weakness is of course that if I um, go up against another flyer list or another a very alpha strike oriented list that I can out lose the game in the first turn. Um, but fortunately, uh, that didn't happen. I cannot really say that there was one particular MVP. It in, in some games, it was the Thunderfire Cannons. In some games, it was the Storm Talon. And in some games, there was the Storm Hawks, especially against Tau, because he couldn't really hurt them with the minus two and toughness seven. Uh, against infantry-based armies, that was uh, the Storm Talon was the the main uh, MVP, and against uh, other infantry armies, I had to slow them down with the uh, Thunderfire cannons, and that was uh, uh, my strategy to win. So the final was uh, a very good match against a very good player. He's called uh, Michael Eck, and this um, the player himself. He was. Uh, very friendly, very relaxed. It was the final. Um, I was on the final table. I thought it might be a little bit more uh, edgy or a little more stressed, but it was not the case. Um, he always understood what my intention was, and I gave him as much uh, freedom as I could give him. So he had um, 35 intercessors, 10 infiltrators, he had uh, three Thunderfire cannons, two whirlwinds, and he started the game. So that was that was tough for me because uh, Imperial Fist can just destroy my list. Uh, after his first turn, he killed, uh, uh, he had five intercessor graph uh, devastators with a dropout as well. So he alpha stroke me. And he killed two flyers and two thunderfire cannons and one land speeder. That's like one third of my army. At that point, uh, I was on the back foot and I could not win that game in a in a shooting fight. 
So I put my uh, airplanes, the left two um, storm talons in hover mode, and I charged his storm drop pod. I, I charged his drop pod. Uh, and that gave me some time um, to outrange him. And he came with his uh, captain and charged my plane. He didn't uh, kill it. That was very unfortunate for him. So in the end, in the next turn, I managed to kill his captain. And I stayed in, in close combat with the drop pod for the rest of the game until um, until I, until he couldn't shoot anything, basically. So at the turn four, five, and six, I managed to score max points, um, and that got me to the win. Uh, regarding what we can do as players or as the tournament organizers, I would say that tournament organizers can adapt the missions because um, in order to win a big tournament, especially if you have only five rounds. You have to score very high on every single game, otherwise you will not uh, make it to the top. That means if you you have to score the bonuses quite early, and you have to always like max score in the entire rounds. So that means in order to do that, you have to. The easiest way to do that is to just kill your opponent turn one, and that gets uh, incentivized with these missions. So if the missions would be a little bit different, then um, that wouldn't, you would not feel so incentivized to just crush your opponent first turn. On top of that, there could be other rules in play for the first turn that would also help. Yes. Thank you so much for listening. Play it, Sam. Tournament news. Hey guys, this is John Lennon, Daniel Smith, and Jimmy Prescott with Florida Man 40K and Team Brohammer, and you're listening to 40K Stat Center. Ho, 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 it's that time of year again. That's right, it's Laneshmas time. Hit it, Val. Chestnuts roasting on a psychic pyre, demonettes nipping at your toes. Wolf tide carols being sung by astropathic choirs and folks dressed up in skimpy clothes. Everybody knows some faith and a bolt pistol will help keep you safe at night. Ah, yes. Our number two complaint, the singing. And this is our second song this episode. That isn't going to stop us, my friend. I bet we can fit in at least two more. <laughs> You're very right, and we probably will. Marius Laneshmus was a 58-player ITC major held in what we have to assume was some kind of risque bodega in Washington State, featuring some of the most slightly above-average players you can find in the Pacific Northwest and a multitude of excellently designed tables provided by the most Slaneshi player in the ITC, Paul Winters, Slaneshmas is a celebration of our hobby over the holidays. The event would end up featuring two undefeated tables when it moved into round five. Best in Factions Collins, Squirman Sherman's Craft Worlds would face off against Ryan Lynn's Iron Hands Air, while Max, May the Schwarzer Be With You's, Imperial Fist would do battle against JP the Marionette Mowitz, Raven Guard. As the event reached its end, it would be Collins' Imperial Fist Craft World, that would take the top seed with Max Schwarzer coming in hot behind him. Awkwardly phrased, but we'll go with it. Let's take a very quick look at the two lists before we let Colin and Max do the better part of the talking. Now, Pete, in the spirit of, you know, changing the way we do things, I don't think anyone's complained or maybe even noticed that we haven't really been reading lists line by line. And frankly, no one needs to hear me to try to do it anymore. So why don't you give us a few quick synopses of what they were running? Sure. Colin Sherman's running a kind of unique new uh, take on Craft World Eldar. Um, he's running a custom Craft World. It's uh, expert crafters and masterful shots uh, for one detachment. Uh, sorry, two of those detachments and expert crafters and masters of uh, masters of concealment for his third. Um, 
expert crafters, for those who don't know, it's the same as the Salamander Master Artisan trait. So he gets to re-roll a hit roll and a wound roll for every uh, unit in his army. Um, Masterful Shots is essentially Imperial Fist's doctrine, so he ignores cover. Um, he doesn't get the extra shots on bolt shots, which is good because uh, Eldar don't have any. But um, it's it's a really uh, potent hit. Um, and what he's been doing is he's been uh, popping in a couple of Wraith Lords in his list uh, just to get the most out of it. Um, Wraith Lords with uh, Star Cannons hit like a truck and are extraordinarily cheap uh, post-chapter approve at like 110, 111 points. Um, so if he goes first and you've got anything um, available for him to shoot, um, like they're just blowing stuff up. Um, so on top of his Wraith Lords, he's also got triple Crimson Hunter Exarch, um, which didn't get worse. They, they went up in points, but the points uh, he saves in this list on the Wraith Lords and on a, a couple of the other units, the Dark Reapers, for example, um, make up that difference. Um, the other big part of this list is going to be his uh, nine Dark Reapers that he's running. Um, with that Masterful Shots uh, uh, custom attribute, um, he's he's putting in just as much, if not more work, definitely more work than any uh, Thunderfire Cannon or uh, like Whirlwind can. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty deadly list. If it gets to go first, he can, he's knocking out probably anywhere from seven to 900 points of your list. Um, pretty easily. That was as much of a synopsis as a short episode of chapter tactics. Hey, Oh, <laughs> Max Schwarzer. He's running kind of your standard, uh, Imperial fist, uh, ignore line of sight gunfire with his thunderfire cannons, um, the big, uh, the big kind of spice that he's added to his list are his relic Daredeo dreadnoughts with the Anvil's auto cannon batteries and those uh, missile launchers. They put out quite a bit of DACA. They're pretty expensive, so we don't see a lot of people running them. Um, but yeah, they're good. Let's hear what they had to say about it. So I designed this list with the help of my teammate Tanner Ebert, and it actually originally was going to be a Imperial Fist Centurion spam list, but. We talked about it, and we eventually settled on a core uh, part of the list that was going to be two Daredeo Dreadnoughts and three Thunderfire Cannons. And the idea with this was three Thunderfire Cannons are pretty severely undercosted units for what they do, um, and they kind of force my opponent to come towards me and try and tag elements of my gun line. Otherwise, I usually am able to shoot most opponents off the table. Um, but then I have these three impulses in the list, which make tagging me and actually getting into combat with me a pretty difficult task. I'm, I also wouldn't say it's like the most difficult list to play, um, because I wanted to keep in mind mental fatigue during a five-round tournament. Um, but it definitely has some elements in there that allow you to express skill as a player. My MVP unit had to have been my chapter master, um, just by far he's um the six inch reroll aura is simply it's just too good of a force multiplier especially with the imperial fist chapter tactic giving me extra hits on unmodified rolls of six for bolt weapons i can use that reroll all hits to kind of fish for those sixes coupled that with his eye of hypnot the relic which gives him essentially um reroll wound rolls of one uh whenever you make a shooting attack if you're within six inches of him aura um, so he's essentially giving me the same aura for rerolls that Gilliman gives Ultramarines. Um, and he's not too shabby. Um, if you need to kind of finish off a vehicle, he gets the uh, plus one to wound against them for a Warlord trade I give him. And his bolt gun is a strength four, AB minus three, damage four against vehicles in the Devastator Doctrine. So he's not too shabby there either. But yeah, he was definitely my MVP. I don't think I could really pick a favorite match or... Um, opponent really um each opponent was just such an amazing person to play against that just really enhanced my time playing them playing the game and being at that tournament um even though in round two i had to play my own teammate uh tanner and his chaos soup list um but i think probably my favorite moment uh from that event was it was my third game on the first day and I figured out I can use Tank Hunter on a Thunderfire Cannon, which gives it plus one to wound against a specific vehicle. And then I can use Suppression Fire and make it fire twice. And so I can shoot into one Eldar tank. I mean, I did this. Um, I shot one Thunderfire Cannon twice into a Night Spinner and killed it in a turn of shooting, which 
is really powerful for a pretty hefty CP investment. But overall, the tournament was great. And again, every opponent I had helped make my experience there that much better. I think the most important thing to remember about Psychic Awakening is that so many of the changes for Eldar are fundamental to the way that the army works. There's a massive paradigm shift in what units are good and what's not. You have to put them on the table and you have to try things and you have to see what you're going to enjoy. You can't just presume that the same things that were good before are good again. Uh, I laugh every time I walk up to the table and people tell me that I shouldn't be playing with Wraith Blades or whatever because they're bad. Things, what's bad changes all the time. I really like how the list worked. It was even better than the previous GT version of the list. I really had a great time piloting it. I felt, thought it felt really natural. Uh, I still haven't had the matchup where you play against a really good uh, fist or iron hand shooting line and you go second and you just see if you can hold on. I'll have to do some testing on that to know where the future of this list goes. But the Marine players that I did play uh, didn't put up much of, a, much of a fight against this particular list. But again, every Marine list is pretty different from each other at this point. I'd really like to uh, mention how excited I am about Mary Slaneshmas, the uh, major that they ran for the first time. Uh, it did make major status. The guy running it, Jason Bird, does a phenomenal job with terrain. It was at a fantastic facility in Ocean Shores. The hotel rooms were great. Everything about this whole weekend was wonderful. I, I think this is going to be a major staple of our uh, season out here. And next year, if you want to see the Pacific Northwest on the cheap, because it's the winner, uh, this is, the, this is uh, the tournament probably to go to. Everybody should keep in mind that Charity Hammer's coming up. It's just a couple weeks out at this point, and the Falcon is involved. He will be here. Uh, it is a, over two days, uh, three streams, tons and tons of content, all at a super competitive le level from some of the best players out there, and you get to watch it for free. To learn more, please check out CharityHammer.com. Tournament News. This is Colin. This is Mitch. This is Chuck. And we're from the Best in Faction podcast, and you're listening to 40k Stat Center, where one host has a really strange nickname, and the other one's called the Falcon. Farewell to Nova Scotia, the sea-bound coast. Let your mountains dark and dreary be. When I am far away on the briny ocean tossed, will you ever heave a sigh or a wish for me? What the heck was that? Val, it was the Irish Rovers, and they are a treasure. Whoa, relax, man. It's just the last time we sang on the show, there were twos of people that asked us to never do that again. The last time we sang on the show was 11 minutes ago, and I can't help it, Val. Nova Scotia is in my bones. It runs through my blood like the impotent rage of tyrannid players the world over after seeing what they got in Psychic Awakening. Rita McNeil, the Rankin family. B.A. Johnston, Pizza Corner, Donair sauce from the King of Donair. I would not be the falcon I am today without that sweet, sweet Atlantic nectar. It is why I'm so excited to report on our only true GT that happened two weekends ago. GeekFest, a 30-player ITC Champions event held in the city where my first feeble pecs would crack the shell of reality and a legend, no, an absolute phenomenon, would be born. Let's hear from T.O., Lanny McDonald lookalike, and potential Kindle reading assistant, Todd Wall, for his take on the event. Warhammer 40K has a fair-sized community of gamers in Halifax, and smaller gaming groups spread across the province. The community is definitely growing, but one thing that stands out is that players are becoming more connected through the various community groups. Halifax has a couple great places to game, from a local GW store to a pair of FLGs which are capable of hosting regular gaming events. The bulk of the players for this event came from the local area of Halifax. There were three players that traveled from Moncton to play, two from the Annapolis Valley, one from as far as Yarmouth, and one player that traveled through a bit of a snowstorm to get to us from New Glasgow area. I found defining the meta to be difficult for this event. There was a widespread of armies presence, everything from orcs, necrons, tau, guard, custodes, admech, dark angels, blood angels, death watch, jakari, demons, ultramarines, imperial fist, a single white scars iron hand list, and one combined imperium list. There was four varied eldar list, four varied chaos list. All the lists did generally have the tools needed to deal with vehicles or hordes. One thing that I'll note is that the games at this event had a much higher rate of completion with more games reaching turn five to six and very few games ending on round three. Thank you very much, Todd, for the background on the event. I also want to say that 
Todd very coolly reached out when the uh, HMCS St. John's was in Toronto, I guess a month or so ago, just before this event uh, was going to happen, and invited me on for a tour of the ship. So a little perk of podcasting, Falcon. Any listeners giving you cool uh, tours of their, their warships? Um, Michael Snyder shook my hand once uh, after he realized who I was, and like it wasn't sweaty or anything. It was It was dry. His hand was like nice. Yeah, Michael Snyder definitely refused to shake my hand. Um, so, you know, one for one. At any rate, thanks, Todd. Go have one over at the Loose Goose or, or Gahan House for your boy, the Falcon, so his lips may live vicariously through you. That sounded way more erotic than I had intended. Mm, I'm okay with it. Sure. Now, GeekFest would come down to an interesting final in that for the first time in what feels like forever, neither of the players at the top table had any power armor in their lists, at least not any good power armor. And remember, this is a number of weeks ago because this also happened again last weekend. Ben Tuna Meltzer Peltzer, boo, Falcon, boo, would go up against Christopher Bugatti Burgert in a battle of Craftworld Eldar versus Renegade Knights. Let's take a quick look at Chris's list. Uh, Chris is running Renegade Knights. Okay. Okay, so that settles that. <laughs> what else? What else you want to say? There's sure. not much. He's got some knights in it. Excellent. All right, so let's uh, let's uh, play some clips from Chris. Thanks for that <laughs> uh, cutting edge insight, Falcon. I was building a Chaos Knight force ever since the chapter approved list dropped, but it wasn't until the Knight Rampager model came out that I got really serious about them. I just fell in love with the model and knew I had to build an army using it. I run everything as an infernal house for the demonic surge ability. The despoilers are mobile fire bases, the Moirax poles hold horde control, and the war dog with autocans is a mobile sniper. The rampager works as a wrecking ball, which he excels at. Demons were backfield objective holders in the Hellrites. They synced perfectly with my playstyle. Every turn I triggered demonic surge on my despoilers and the Hellrites would heal them back up. Basically, I just wanted to play a list with massive stompy metal monsters, and I just tweaked it until I got to where I was happy with it. All in all, I'm pleased with how it performed. Definitely my Night Rampager. I based her off Brynhild and the Burning Sky from the Codex, and she makes a great first turn threat. It's rare that she sees turn two, but with the exception of the last game, she always made a first turn charge and got right into the enemy lines. She racked up a Yinkarn, two war bosses, and a whole bunch of vehicle and troop kills throughout the event. Just from the distraction value alone, she pays for herself. She does chew up command points really quickly, but I've not regretted taking her. Besides, she's just really fun to play, especially when she gets to squish someone in her gauntlet. Or when she inevitably gets taken down, I trigger Spiteful Demise to overload her power core right in the middle of the enemy army. It's the little things you have to enjoy. Beautiful, Chris. If not absolutely terrifying. I have uh, never heard someone use the term malice of forethought before outside of maybe Skeletor. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, Chris's opponent, Ben, has been on our show a couple of times now, having won Gork's Grand Bash earlier this year and losing at the top table of Warzone Montreal to Steve Pamperine. At GeekFest, the East Coast Crusher would find himself neck deep in Space Marine before a little luck and a whole lot of forgetfulness on his opponent's end would seal him a spot in the finale. But first, a quick check at his list. So Ben's kind of running your standard affair craft worlds from a couple weeks back. Um, his his little big ticket item is that he does love his Eldrad Ultuan, who doesn't see a lot of play anymore um, and has now gone up in points post-chapter approved. But he's got your big guardian bomb. He's got uh, with Elthway, uh, with so they do get a little bit of a benefit there. Um, he's got seven Dark Reapers, two Night Spinners, uh, double Crimson Hunter Exarch, and a Hemlock Wraithfighter. You know, all the good stuff that you normally would see from a well-put-together Craftworld Eldar list. There's nothing overly special about my approach to this list. It's just, you know, a mobile Eldar list that you know, does kind of what Eldar does. It buffs, it smites, and it has an obscene amount of output. And yeah, that's about it there. My MVP this weekend was definitely Eldrad. He's a really resilient unit and can stand up to the Eliminator spam that you're starting to see from uh, some Marine lists. He also acts as a great force multiplier and can have some really nasty damage output through Smite, Executioner, and especially if you get him at 
you know, his buffed up casting, Super Smites are very easy to come by. In the end, these two titans of industry would be pit against each other in what the people of Chetikamp would call a tete-a-tete. It was sure to be a bloodbath as the self-professed purveyor of needless maliciousness tried to sink his big bad robo-boots into all that gooey elf-eared goodness. In the end, just like with most knockoff Scottish things, there can only be one, and Ben would come out on top. Let's hear from them about how that final game played out. It was a pretty close match. Ben's a really good player. He seized the initiative, which we both thought would be the deciding factor against each other. But he didn't actually do that much damage at all first turn. I managed to knock out two of his flyers and cripple the third, so that was an unexpected boost. On the downside, for the first time all tournament, I didn't make my Rampager's first time charge. That was definitely an onion in the ointment for me. It went back and forth little ways like that. Ben's a tough nut to crack, and he was able to get Eldrad into play. And between Doom and his Night Spinners, he just focused down my knights. The final turning point would probably be losing my first spoiler a bit earlier than I'd hoped, but I was running the Helm of Warp Sight on it, and Ben just threw everything he could at it. It was definitely the right move. He played a great game, and it was a fun match. Highlight from the top table is uh, I was joking around with my opponent, Chris, about how all I needed to do was seize the initiative to win the game. And uh, as I'm doing that, I kind of say, you know, hey, watch this. Uh, Going to roll a six, roll the dice, and bang, it comes up a six. So I ended up seizing, going first. I was a little out of position for that, but it definitely let me put some good damage on his knights, despite having a bit of a whiff that kind of uh, put him on the back foot right away and uh, ended up letting me... Uh, pull ahead in the game. Uh, tight game nonetheless. Great opponent. Would definitely play him again. Thanks, Ben. What a champ. I dub thee the Emperor of Pizza Corner, the Duke of the Foggy Side of Citadel Hill, and the Lord of the Thomas the Tugboat Tour. Wear that mantle with pride and is not hastily given. Tournament News. Hi, I'm Chief Petty Officer, Second Class, Hardwall of HMCS St. John's and Roll the Initiative in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And you're listening to 40K Stats. Hootie hoo! It's time for some quick hits. This past weekend, we saw a couple of great little GTs. And because we're checking out, let's check in to some shout outs. Frontline Gaming Network's very own Scarry from Scardcast took the Hooded Goblin GT up in Georgetown, Ontario. John Lennon won the maybe a GT. Here we go again, Iron Man in a swamp somewhere in Florida. TJ Lennigan stayed squarely on the naughty list, winning the Foyt before Christmas and swinging Dixon, Pennsylvania. And last weekend, the Thorn and Reese's Cap, Michael Snyder took the Rudder GT with his home-brewed Iron Hand successor chapter, the Jaguars of Justice. We didn't bother getting any clips from Michael because we have to assume that his models are still ugly. Please prove us wrong, Snyder. We want to love you so much. Also from two weeks back, we had the Maelstrom Massacre, a 34-player ITCGT hosted at Maelstrom Hobbies in Hampstead, North Carolina, won by Alan Blakeborough and his hands of iron. Let's hear about it, Alan. Thanks, guys, for asking about the Maelstrom GT. My army's special ability, the thing that makes it different from all other Iron Hands list, is the number of scouts that I use. I use nine units of scouts, six of them have sniper rifles. The ability to uh, have board control, do the mortal wounds, um, be able to move without having a negative to hit, and getting to reroll ones, I think sets my army uh, apart from everything else. Uh, people have to deal with the scouts. If they don't deal with the scouts, uh, I'll pluck them off for the rest of the game which leaves a lot of my other army alive to, you know, take out their units through the ITC format. For me, my favorite game and the highlight of the tournament was basically playing against the Iron Hands medalist. Um, my opponent had two of the Relic Leviathan Dreadnoughts. He had two of the Relic Contemptor Dreadnoughts and the Chaplain Dreadnought with the double last cannons. Um, now, fortunately, I did seize the initiative, so I got to go first. Um, from that aspect, um, the mortal wounds that the snipers were able to do to the Relic Leviathans, um, his inability to do his feel-no-pains um, really had an impact in the game. Um, being able to scout with my two baby carriers and the Phobos Librarian really got into his face quick, um, and I think that kind of showed which of the two lists, um, you know, 
it can go either way. Finally, I'd like to give a shout out to the guys at Maelstrom Hobbies. Um, they ran a real uh, great event. Um, lots of people, um, lots of guys came from the southeast to play. Uh, they were um, awesome hosts. Um, hope to see them host more tournaments in the future. Um, it was well run, um, very organized, ran on time. Um, really um, happy to go there. And even though it was getting up at you know four o'clock in the morning to drive from Greenville, South Carolina to uh, Wilmington. And finally, we round things out with the Dice Hammer GT, a 39-player ITC event held in Lake Forest, California. Decided on top table between Matt Estrada's Raven Guard successors and Vincent Weibert's ice-cold Iron Hand Air Force. Let's hear from the fellas on how the event went. I was looking for something simple. I was looking for something that would play fast, was basic point and click, and didn't require a lot of model moving and a lot of effort to play, honestly. Uh, full disclosure, this was my first time playing Iron Hands and honestly my first time playing Space Marines since the, uh, since the new edition came out. I have played against them a couple of times, but this was really my first time at the helm piloting them. This actually came through in the way that I played as several times throughout the tournament, I would forget some of the abilities that I had. I would forget to reroll command points. I would forget to go ahead and uh, do some rerolls. I constantly forgot to do my feel no pains and probably only took a third of the feel no pain rolls that I was supposed to. The fact that I still pulled out as good a finish as I did is really a testament to the current power level of Iron Hands, more so than any tactical acumen on my part. For an MVP in the workhorse units, I'd have to go with the Invictor Warsuits. While the Executioner is an obvious choice as a big gun that did a lot of damage, the versatility of those warsuits was just phenomenal throughout the game. They're able to go ahead and take out infantry in handfuls as well as being able to put damage on larger targets because of the high strength auto cannons. And of course being Space Marines, the obviously high AP numbers on all the heavy weapons across the board really made a big difference. Further, those war suits have high mobility, can get around the board, and a couple of times when they got into combat they broke those fists out and just started punching fools. A lot of damage done by then on a lot of targets, so I'd definitely go with them and recommend them for pretty much anybody who is looking for a versatile unit. So the real focus of the list was to stay infantry only. We wanted to dodge these big slap fights that Iron Hands get into. We wanted to dodge these you know, static gun lines that the meta's at right now. And the best way to do that, I've, I found, is to stay out of line of sight, to hide. You can't really hide knights... You can't hide, you know, six tanks or whatever. So we, we switched the focus from more of a guard knight play style to Raven Guard, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. Uh, just dodging these these big matchups. I mean, I played against, like, nine flyers and iron hands, and it's been really satisfying to be able to outmaneuver them around ruins and, and enclosed buildings and around L's and stuff and just be able to play a more dodgy, objective-style kind of game. Uh, I f just find that really rewarding as opposed to just throwing dice at people till they evaporate. So the MVP of the tournament, I would have guessed before the event would be the Eliminators. They're so good. They're very efficient. They're way too cheap. Um, they just really carry the list. And once Raven Guard Tactical Doctrine gets on a roll, they just, they do, they bring the business. Um, however, the MVP was the Smash Captain uh, pretty naturally. He's a heat-seeking missile of pain and destruction and he he definitely did the job that he needed to uh before each game i'd look at across the table and see how did i lose what unit caused me to lose and the smash captain will go take care of it the sneaky mvp which i didn't really expect were the aggressors before going into the tournament i thought they were going to be my weakest unit uh i definitely wanted centurions you just can't buy them anymore uh they don't they're just not enough in existence i guess but the aggressors did fine. They held their own. They fired a lot. They punched a lot. I was really happy with them. Another highlight was just being able to get a good game in against Brandon, and especially with it being one with favorable terrain and favorable army matchup. Brandon's a great guy, and even though he was at a huge disadvantage in this matchup, uh, he was a good sport throughout the whole thing, and that was a pleasure. Uh, you know, I think it's really kind of telling that I'm able to take an army that I hadn't played before, 
and go up against Brandon Grant and go ahead and pull out a win. I think that really speaks to the current power level of Space Marines in the meta. And I'm just glad that I was able to go ahead and uh, have a little luck in the matchup and the terrain uh, and, uh, and pull out a victory. Um, I'm also glad I was able to go ahead and be there. I know he's been practicing, trying to find a way to match up against Space Marines, and I'm glad to be a part of that. And uh, Iron Hands Air Force, it's a pretty tough matchup. Highlight of the tournament was the last round where the only undefeateds were on the top table. It's, it's exactly how God intended a 40K tournament to go down. Uh, he's got a scary, scary Iron Hands list with the Flyers and a repulsor and invictors and the support. And uh, it's what I was trying to not fight the entire tournament. And here we are. So we take advantage of the terrain. We take advantage of having more indirect fire, surprisingly, because he only has one Thunderfire cannon to mine and one less eliminator squad than me. Uh, we have a very cagey match until he finally gets a little too comfy and gets his impulsor a little too close. We are able to punch it with the aggressors wrap the three dudes that come out because we killed a couple on the exit and stay there all game on an objective with his guys wrapped. It was super cool. Um, it was a great, a great ending to a fun, a fun tournament. Another big, big takeaway for me at this tournament was going second uh, with Raven guard is so nice because everybody's so terrified of the alpha strike and rightfully so it's, it's crippling to get hit with six aggressors, but they will deploy so defensively and so carefully to not get alpha struck. But when they win the roll up, they immediately want to go first, which is awesome because now I just master of ambush into a ruin halfway up the board uh, behind an L uh, out of line of sight. And I'll pregame spend like three CP pregame, moving everything away so that they don't have a good first turn at all, but they had to take it or else they felt like they were just going to get blown out. So Raven guard going second is really just, the objective game just opens up so much because you get killed more, hold more really easily because you're dicta you're dictating the pace of the game. I liked it a lot. I was surprised. Tournament news. Hi, I'm Stephen Box from Vanguard Tactics, and you're listening to the one and only 40k Stat Center. And that's it for a little while, my friends. While we're gone, don't forget to share your feedback about the show so that we can give it due consideration and then carry out our already laid plans anyway. Keep in mind, despite this hiatus, you'll still be stocked full with content from our peerless peers over on the Frontline Gaming Network, where this week Pablo will be joined by us, and also Skari, to talk about the year that was and wax poetic about appropriate podcast lengths. Then, of course, you'll also have some sizzling Art of War content with 40K's biggest charity case, Colin Sherman, telling us all about those knife-eared Xenos that he always comes crawling back to. And finally, Reese and his new podcast companion, Bizarro Pablo, will keep on podcasting into the deep reaches of 2019 because Reese doesn't believe in holidays. The Frontline Gaming Network, come for the three mediocre, regularly scheduled podcasts and stay for the one amazing one that gets posted whenever the hosts feel like it. You're goddamn right. Pete, anything else to add? Bye bye This has been 40K Stat Center, a presentation of the Frontline Gaming Podcast Network. Like what we do? Subscribe to and rate us on YouTube and wherever podcasts can be found. Join the conversation. Follow 40K Stat Center on Facebook. You can also support the show directly by joining the Chapter Tactics Patreon and competitive 40K in general via the ITC Patreon or by grabbing a subscription to BCP. BCP.